Luke 16, 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will, re will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, worship team as well. Um, so great to have, as Steve said, you guys lead us. And... Um, if you're visiting with us, my name's Mark, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you're here with us. Um, it's hard to walk into a church, uh, it must be hard if you don't know everyone, and um, well done, we're glad that you're here, and we're glad that you're with us. Um, if you want to come to the baptisms, you don't have to be a member of King's Cross, you can come to the baptisms, they're going to be around 2 o'clock up at Subi Church of Christ. Uh, churches are not in competition. We are an independent church in a Salvation Army building, baptizing people in a church of Christ. Uh, there is no competition. We have one message, one Lord, one Savior, one God, and our one purpose is to tell people in this city about the love of God through Jesus Christ, and um, we're working together to do that. So you're welcome to come at around 2 o'clock to the baptisms. Uh, I feel the need to also let you know we don't sell couches, even though all of our announcements <laughs> seem to have couches in them. Um, they are not available anywhere for purchase. I wish they were. They're very nice. Um, but I, I have no explanation for all the couches that are on our screens. Um, all the country music that we seem to be uh, bringing into our worship. Um, though, it, though I must admit I do like it. I think anything that Josh is influencing is going to have an aspect of country. Um, so thank you, everyone, on the worship team for either um, listening to Josh or honoring Josh. Um, but it was, it was great. It was just lovely to sing that. I think it was the third song, new song, country song. It was wonderful. <laughs> Loved it. Let me pray for us. And what's going to happen is I'm just going to teach from this text. We're going to listen to a song at the end of it. And then we're going to take communion um, afterwards and then go and continue to celebrate Mother's Day. Um, so let me just uh, pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Lord, thank you uh, that we're here today. Thank you that we can meet publicly. 
Um, thank you for the freedom we have to worship you in this nation, to share the love of Jesus with, with others in this nation without fearing um, su- uh, physical suffering or harm. I pray, God, that uh, just as Nas prayed, that you would, we would see the opportunities we have to share your love with others around us. Um, the one thing we want more than anything, Lord, is to um, make you known, make you glorified in our city. Your word says wherever you are lifted up, you draw men to yourself. I pray for this morning as we look at your word that you would touch our hearts. Holy Spirit, please work upon our hearts. Please help there to be no burden or shame or guilt or indifference. Help us to sit in the grace of Jesus, to have the Holy Spirit working upon our hearts and to put faith in our hearts to believe what you have for us. In your wonderful name. Amen. So Jesus tells this story, in, in I'll just give a short paraphrase, um, to either the Pharisees or the Pharisees are listening as he tells his disciples. One or the other, he wants the Pharisees to hear it. Um, and among the Jews, the Pharisees are the religious elite. They are like the, the, you know, the people that you look up to, um, that you want to be like. And um, they love the good life. Jesus tells a story about these two men. Um, and how nothing but faith in God counts as anything in eternity. Um, and he's got these kind of two polar types of people, these two lifestyles. The one man's very wealthy and lives the life everyone wished they lived. If, um, if, you've, if you go to high school or uni, it's like you, there's always those people that you wished you could be them or you wished your life was like them or everything would be all right if you could have what they have or in the workplace or in the net, you know, if I could live in this neighborhood or drive that car or eat that food or have this many Instagram followers, um, they, they've got the life everyone wants to live. And that's this first guy. And he, uh, at his gate lies this other guy who's got no life at all. Um, he's, he's the people in high school no one wants to be seen talking to or um, the person at work that never gets invited out for beers after work uh, it's the, car you, it's the person with the car that you'd never want to be seen driving or the neighborhood that you never want to live in. Um, they've got no life at all. And there's these two like kind of polar lifestyles uh, that people uh, are stuck in that we see. Um, and then they die. And this poor person, this no life at all person, is Ubered to heaven by an angel and is given this place of honor next to Abraham, who's the father of the Jews. In other words, the biggest celebrity in heaven outside of God uh, to, to the Jewish audience is Abraham. And in this picture, Jesus goes, yeah, there's no life at all person that no one wants to be like, no one wants to be seen around, no one wants to touch them. He gets ubered to heaven by the angels and he's in heaven next to Abraham. He's Abraham's mate. Um, so his life really turns around. He's, it's, there's a big reversal. Then the rich man dies. We don't find out who ubered him where, but we find out where he got to. He just died and went to Hades or hell or Gehenna, uh, all these different names for the same place. And he becomes conscious of his suffering. He wakes up and he's, he's uh, suffering and he's in anguish. Um, and he's still kind of, he still kind of sees himself as a little bit maybe, maybe superior to the poor guy because he sees the poor guy in heaven. And he goes, hey, Father Abraham, won't you send him to come and give me a little bit of, of water to kind of... Uh, quench my anguish that I'm experiencing. And can you imagine being the poor guy? You've been, poor, you've been this guy your whole life, lying around, dogs licking you, 
And now this, this guy who's had this great life is, is saying, can you please send him? You finally are healed. Finally, your life is wonderful. And he goes, please send him back down here to hell to um, come take care of me. Like, can you imagine? I just imagine the poor guy, please, Father Abraham, don't listen to him. Please. Like, man, this guy, he had every day to help me out. He never helped me out. Just please, can I just stay here? Um, anyway, Abraham says no. No, no, no. Well, then just send Lazarus to, the, to tell my family. Warn my family. Warn my family because if they die, I don't want them to end up in hell. And Lazarus, uh, Abraham says no. He says no. Why? Abraham says they have the word of God. If they don't listen to the word of God, they won't listen to even one who's been raised from the dead. And obviously there's some massive irony there that Jesus, who knows he's going to die and be raised from the dead, uh, die for the sins of all people and raised from the dead to offer eternal life to everyone, he knows that if they won't believe in God, if they won't hear God, if they won't hear what God is saying, then they're never going to believe Him. And, and He's standing right there. The guy who's going to raise from the dead is the guy who's telling them the story to believe God. And they won't hear Him. Um, in other words, the Word of God is all about the guy who raised from the dead. The Word of God is all about Jesus. So if they won't read the Word of God, if they won't believe the Word of God, they're not going to believe Jesus. So Jesus shows us. Here's, here's uh, the point this morning, and then we'll look at three things. Jesus shows us that a person who believes God will rejoice for all eternity. The person who believes God will rejoice for all eternity. There's a whole lot of assumptions there. person who believes God, you, there's, a, there's a truth you have to believe that's outside yourself. That's already quite a difference to our culture. Uh, we'll live for all eternity. Eternity is something that we rarely think about because in our culture what we're really thinking about is the good life today. How can I live the good life today or do something today so I can have a good life tomorrow? And there's a say, well, what about all eternity? So here's the three things we're going to look at. How does God's Word help us to live now for the life that is to come? Number one, God's Word helps us manage wealth. Number two, God's Word helps us live through suffering. That's what we see with these two people. And number three, God's Word helps us rest in Jesus. Number one, God's, God's Word helps us ma uh, manage wealth. So the rich man goes nameless, and um, that's okay, because if in Jesus' parables, all the people go nameless, so this isn't unusual in the storytelling. It's not that Jesus is totally indifferent to him. He's ridiculously wealthy. Think of, it says he wears purple robes with fine linen beneath it. Now, in that day and age, purple was a royal color. It eventually became a law that only royals could wear purple, because it was this like nobility and this uh, I'm better than you um, color uh, that you could wear. And so uh, to get it in that day, you, you, they would extract it from a murex snail, a snail from the ocean. And you would need about 10,000 snails to get about a gram of purple dye. 10,000 sea snails to get about a gram of purple dye. But these snails didn't excrete the purple dye until they were dead. And so they would uh, dry them for two or three days on the shoreline. So can you imagine them making purple dye in your neighborhood? Just sea snails everywhere and the stench. It, it's, it's, apparently the dye continued to stink, kind of like fish sauce or fish oil. It's hard to get out of your clothes. Um, but the dye, the, 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 the uh, kind of the, the purple was so magnificent that even if you stunk a little bit, it outdid the smell. Um, or the smell added to it. If you smelt a little bit like rotten sea snail, uh, people would be like, oh yeah, that man's living the life. Uh, I know what he has in his closet. 
Or think about the gates that they described. They described the gates of his house like the gates of a palace or a city. In other words, he must live in a mansion for this poor person to sit, lie at his gates in the way that he does. So there's this guy who smells like snails because he's that wealthy, and he lives in a mansion. He's living the life. He's living the dream. Um, that's not exactly how it looks like today. But basically, it's the person that is wearing the clothes, you, you know, whatever clothes you want, living in whatever neighborhood you want, driving whatever car you want, going to whatever school you want, to eating at whatever restaurants you want, um, hanging out with whatever friends you want, passing time however you want, when you want, with whomever you want. It's the life on your own terms. So the life is you could, you could make it for yourself. What life would that be? Um, so it's comfortable, it's easy, it's pleasurable, and it's for you. But the rich man sees this terrible reversal, right? Everything he's loved is left behind when he dies. And this is, the, this is what Jesus is trying to say, is that when you die, you can take nothing with you to, to eternal life. So the logic is, not that Jesus is saying stuff is bad or good. He's not making a comment on that. He's saying you can't find your life in things because those things aren't going to go with you for eternal life. The things aren't bad in themselves, but they can't be, they can't satisfy you. They can't be what you find your identity in. Um, so he sees a terrible reversal. Wealth is this kind of delicate liar, this gentle little lie teller. Why? Because I don't, if you're like me, and I think we're, we're similar, regardless of our age or gender, um, we, the idea of wealth tells us the same lie, that it's going to give us security, that it will give us comfort, that it will give us pleasure, that it will give us ease, control, maybe superiority, maybe power, success, will make our dreams come true, we'll be able to uh, help uh, hinder our suffering if we have wealth, um, we'll be able to make our lives better if we're wealthy, um, and it's not just wealth, it may be something else, another resource that you have an abundance of, maybe you have an abundance of time or intelligence or beauty. Um, it could be anything, friendships. The principle remains, whatever you trust your life in, whatever you identify yourself into, whatever you, you think is going to satisfy you and fulfill your life, it, it's going to fail you because when you die, you won't be able to take that with you. So that can't be you. It can't define you. It can't protect you. It can't uh, do what it says it's going to do. It can't give you worthiness or meaning or joy or healing. Um, so how does God, God's Word teach us to manage wealth? How does the Bible teach us to manage, manage wealth? What does it say about it? Here, there's a few cautions. We're not going to read all the Scriptures. I can give them to you. They're in my notes. If you want to go home and read them for yourself, I'll just give the points for the sake of time. It says riches can get in the way of eternity. They can kind of turn our hearts into the now, and we stop thinking about the life that God has, us, has for us in eternity, beyond this life. Um, riches can lead a person to oppress others. That's happening all over the world today. The wealthy oppressing the poor. Riches can cause a person to turn inward where we focus on ourselves. Um, riches can hinder spiritual growth in our lives. We start thinking that money can be like a God and satisfy and serve us. So we start trusting in money. Riches can deceive us about our hearts. So basically, Jesus sums it up. Money can be a master that you submit your life to. You begin to serve it or live for it. But the opportunities, the Bible tells us, that, again, Jesus doesn't make money good or bad. 
Uh, he doesn't make wealth good or bad. But he d- talks about opportunities that wealth can be used to help others hear the great news of Jesus. Wealth can be used to help uh, support missionaries. Wealth can be used to help support uh, new churches being planted in, in new areas where no one knows about the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that's happening all over the world today. It's Ranjit said thank you last week. They're reaching a neighborhood in Delhi, India, um, and we had the privilege of being able to help them through some difficulties during COVID. They're reaching people who have never heard about the love of Jesus. Riches can be used for helping the poor. Riches can be used to help others. Riches can be used for eternal benefit. That's the one that surprises me the most. Riches can be used for eternal benefit. You can, it's basically an investment plan. You can invest in your eternity. It's, I mean, the only reason we wouldn't do that is if we didn't believe it was true. So money can be a servant that you use for eternal good. I know this guy. He's a, he's, I don't just know him. He's a very good friend of mine who was very successful at saving money. He wasn't born wealthy. He was born, he was born with lots, but he, I wouldn't put him in the, the like, wealthy category. But he, he saved well, and he grew up in a family that saved well. His mom had a special lounge in her house whenever we visited. It had a carpet that had never been walked on with couches that were wrapped in plastic covers so that they could never age. But we couldn't figure out the purpose because you could never go in the room <laughs> and enjoy it. It was a lovely room, but none of us ever enjoyed the room. But, the, but he learned to be a saver. He learned to keep things. Um, and he made him through that, uh, and he had a good job. Uh, he saved a lot of money, and, and he got himself in a good position. He, drove, he bought the car he wanted. He bought a very nice house in the neighborhood that he wanted. Um, he married the woman that he wanted. He had beautiful children. Um, when they wanted to. Um, he had the job that he wanted, and he went to the church that he wanted to. I mean, his life was exactly the life that he, he wanted. He was living the comfortable, easy uh, life. And, he, and also, he had a, I, we used to always tease him about his Timothy tummy. He couldn't eat odd food because his tummy, it would wreck his tummy. Um, and so he only ate the food that he wanted. Um, so it's, it's, it's wealth... Um, exactly as he wanted it. And as he walked with God, uh, he began to change. And his heart began to change, and his heart began to open, and began, began to see what Jesus is like, and that had an effect on his heart, and began to see what he had received from Jesus, and what Jesus had done for him. And something began to change in him, where um, last year, uh, he left his home, and his car, and his job, to go and be a missionary in Thailand. Um, driving unsafe scooters, living in homes that aren't as comfortable as his home in California, uh, eating food that would wreck his tummy meal after meal after meal, uh, that he has to take special pills to get through, um, speaking a language that he doesn't really understand. Uh, his life has been turned upside down. It's re- why? Well, no one told him to do it. But walking with Jesus gave him a bigger heart. He looked at his comfortable life and looked beyond it and realized there was much more. The nice car, nice house wasn't going to satisfy him. It wasn't worth living for. It wasn't worth dying for. Um, Going into a nation and telling people about the love of Jesus meant more than all of that. It made him a a richer man. Um, Maybe, perhaps you need God to do a miracle on your heart and to open your hands to him. 
Number two, God's word helps us live through suffering. The rabbis called Lazarus' condition no life at all. Listen to the three reasons. This was a real thing. <laughs> like, they could look at you and go, you have no life at all. And that's the rabbi. That's like, the, the, like top-tier religious people diagnose you as no life as all, at all. Imagine going to school and whoever's like the most influential person goes, huh, I've thought about you and I've determined you have no life at all. <laughs> you just suck. <laughs> it's like ruined your school life forever. Uh, but they had these three things. Uh, if you were ruled by your wife or if you depended on someone else for food or if you have sores all over your body, you had no life at all. Lazarus nailed two of those. He had no life at all times twice. He had double no life at all. He had no life at all amongst those who had no life at all. He's like, Jesus is really telling us about someone who's got no hope, no life, nothing to live for. This guy literally has nothing going for him. No health, no food, no strength, no friends, no companions, no life. Um, Suffering is not as far away from us as we think it is, right? Suffering plagues our world in many ways, in various ways. It's indiscriminate. It can affect us physically, psychologically, emotionally, relationally, financially, spiritually. Extended suffering can crush our body and our spirit over time. Uh, In our world, we spend billions of dollars trying to remove any form of suffering we can. Uh, Billions of dollars are being spent on research every year to get rid of various forms of suffering. Um, We want to get rid of it. In wealthy countries, we're living longer. Therefore, more people are experiencing cancer, heart disease, and loss of mental faculties. And in poor countries, uh, people are experiencing diseases that can be cured. And whether you live longer or live shorter, you're still going to suffer. Wars cause societal and mental and physical suffering too. In the old book now, Um, The Lessons of History, Will and uh, Ari Durant write that in the 3,420 years of recorded history, there have only been 268, that's way less than 10%, years without war. In all of recorded history, well, there have been less than 10% of years without a war. The United Nations statistics suggest that 854 million people are undernourished and 25,000 people die every day from hunger and hunger-related problems. Almost half the world live under $2 a day. I don't know if my kids could live under $2, under, under $2 a day. Uh, the UN estimates that over 40 million people are in modern slavery. Individual greed affects billions of lives. There's seemingly no escaping s- slavery. It doesn't matter what culture, what nation, what kingdom we live in or a part of, we cannot escape suffering one, one way or another. Um, it's, it seems to be at our doorstep. And there's only one small hint in the story that this person with no life that cannot escape suffering has any hope. They have no hope in themselves. Jesus has given such a great picture of no hope. They are so, either they're so weak they can't move or they're paralyzed. They have sores all over their bodies that the, the dogs come and lick. And these are street dogs. The Jews would have thought that as revolting. It's like a poor person uh, who has a, a terrible stench about them and body sick stores is lying outside your front door and then when you look at the window to have a look at who they are, you notice some rats are crawling around them nibbling and picking at their flesh. It's revolting and they, they have no hope, no life. It's not the kind of 
draw compassion to this person. It's the kind of get them away from me situation. But Jesus leaves a little thing in the story to let us know that they do have hope. And you, This little thing he does only here. He doesn't do it in any other story he tells. He gives him a name. He gives the person in his story a name. And he gives him the name Lazarus. And that means nothing to us. But Lazarus has an important meaning. Lazarus means God is my help. Jesus is saying to them, this revolting person that we wouldn't want near us, they actually have hope. It's all in the name. What's impossible for man is not impossible for God. God can still redeem this person. Who's more likely to make it in life? All of us would say, this person. This person can. They've got the means and the resources and the opportunity. And Jesus says, no. All you need to make it is nothing. All you need is God's help. That's what you need. Utter reliance on God. Suffering can crush you, but knowing God is our help can encourage us. So how does God's help, how does God's word help us live through suffering? The psalmist writes, My comfort in suffering is this, Your promise preserves my life. In other words, God's word can be trusted. God can be trusted. All of us trust things every day. It's the easiest thing in the world to trust our own will or our own want. That's normally what we trust, even if we don't know what we're doing or we're not competent. At least if we trust ourselves, we're doing what we think is best, right? But God is saying, or Jesus is saying, there's another will and another way that you can put your trust in. And it won't always line up with yours. And it may sometimes confront you or challenge you or tell you that your way is not the right way. But you can trust it, and it's good, and it's good for you. And David says, or the psalmist writes, this is what I'll put my comfort in, in trusting you. So God's word tells us exactly how this world will end and what it will be like for those who trusted him. What will the world, are you interested in that? What will the world be like for those who trusted him? If you, uh, if you're not, if you haven't, if you're not walking with Jesus, if, Jesus has, if you haven't kind of believed in God in that way and you're still living life on your own terms, um, a curious, I, I think a curious question might be, what, what, will, what, what is Jesus' idea of what the world will look like after this, when this life is over? Well, I'll tell you because he told us in his word. Um, Revelation 21, verse 3 to 4. Now, if you've never had a Bible, you don't have a Bible, there's and you, ha- you have a phone, you can grab your phone and you can put in the word revelation and then a number 21 and then uh, a colon or three and you'll be surprised, but there's all sorts of Bibles on the internet for free to read. Uh, lots of people will struggle to find this. If you do have a Bible, it's right at the end of your, your Bible. At revelation 21 is like the, almost the very last word said in the whole Bible. Um, from verse 3, I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Um, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what Jesus tells us to look forward to. Number one, God will dwell with man. 
There's no neighborhood in the whole world who can make this boast. There's some places I often think where I live, I think, man, this is such a distraction from heaven because it feels like heaven. I know that I would struggle to live on a front row seat at Cottesloe because I'm not sure if I'll be totally distracted for the rest of my life because when the sun sets over the ocean, man, doesn't it feel like heaven? Friday night, there wasn't a breeze in the air. There was no one at the beach. I couldn't believe it. No one at Cottesloe Beach. And it looked like heaven. It was gorgeous. Birds singing, sunset filling the sky. But there's not a neighborhood in the world that can boast that God's there. God is with us. But God will dwell with us. We will all dwell in the neighborhood with God. What's the neighborhood with God going to look like? Well, it's going to be amazing. God will wipe away every tear. This speaks about ultimate comfort. Paul said, Praise be to the God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion uh, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our troubles. So there's this promise that there's going to be comfort. Why? Because God, it's not that God only comforts. Paul doesn't say praise God because He just comforts us. It's not like that's one of the things God does. It's who God is. That, there's a difference. You know what I mean? There's like someone can do something for someone, but eventually it like the, the, like service. I've done enough for you now. I just want to move on. But what if they just are a servant that just loves helping people? I've watched that with my wife as she's gone into nursing. Helping people isn't what she does. Helping people is who she is. She comes home from eight hours of being in a hospital with more energy and life. How's that possible? Because she got to be herself and help people. And God gets to be Himself and comfort us because He's a comforter. God will wipe away every tear. But comfort isn't only what God does. There's more. Death shall be no more, the verse says. There will be no more death. John Donne, the poet, the great poet, wrote, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. He begins his poem, and then he ends his poem. Death, thou shalt die. (laughs) It's so fantastic. Why should death be not proud? Because he says, all you do is put people to sleep. They will rise again. But death, once you put people to sleep, you no longer have a hold on anyone. God, God liberates and frees us, and death shall be no more. Death is the one that dies. So life with God is eternal. This is interesting. We're not going to get into it now for the sake of time. But, but think about this. Every single one of us are born, and from the moment we're born, we're heading towards our death. That's a bit morbid. I'm sorry. But that's what's happening. Every one of us is getting closer to our death all the time. That's, you can go home and share that with someone who asks you, how was it going to church? Yeah, I found out that I'm more dead before I, than I, uh, now than I was when I went to church. Uh, that sounds fantastic. But that's what's happening, right? We're all moving towards our death. It's inescapable. We, we're going to end up dying. But then, G, then God talks about eternal life through Jesus Christ, that, but, and where there is no death. Well, where does your life go when it's not moving towards death? No, we're not sure about that. It's a mystery. Because even if you're not thinking about death, part of the anxieties, part of the worries, part of the suffering, part of the ambitions in life is all to get as much done before you die. It's all to live as much of life as you can before you die. It's an attempt to live life because life is going to expire. But what when 
what, when that is removed and the only thing you're moving towards is life. And a hundred years after the first thousand years, you're still moving towards life. You begin to understand why there's no worry or anxiety or stress or suffering. Why is death being removed? The writer of Revelation says, because these things have passed away. The absence of mourning and crying and pain and suffering is because death has been put away at the cross of Christ. When Jesus died and was raised to life, he, he opened a door for us to enter into his eternal life. He won us back. He paid the price. He's removed in, in this eternal life that God talks about it's the absence. Why is there the no pain, no suffering? No, because there's no influence of sin and Satan. He's totally removed. Number three, God's Word helps us to rest in Jesus. Whether you're managing wealth or living through suffering, God's Word helps us to rest in Jesus. This is a parable all about reversals, all about... This life turning, reversing into the next life to come. Notice that Jesus never says, wealth is bad and suffering is good. Don't believe that. If there's anyone who's a religious person that starts to make you feel bad about being rich or poor, or starts to make you feel good about being rich or poor, they're not telling you the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no mention about that. He doesn't tell people how much to give. He doesn't, tell, he doesn't even say what the rich man should have done for the poor man. There is no rule, no law, no principle in this parable. All that is, he's telling us is that without God, they have nothing. And that if they have God's help, they have everything. So how can the wealthy rest in Jesus? Well, Jesus has experienced the great reversal himself. He left the glories and the perfections of heaven, the prince of heaven for all eternity, creator of, of all things. Jesus was worshipped and praised. And he chose to enter this world as a person. He chose to put on human flesh. He chose to come into our world in a time in history that was very uncomfortable. To be born in a stable, to experience all sorts of suffering. He entered our brokenness. In fact, the Bible says that he's kind of experienced every form of suffering. He's been rejected. He's been abused. He's been lonely. Paul writes to the Corinthians in the Bible, he says, I'm not commanding, he, he, he wants to take up an offering for a poor church. And, and he says he's collecting money, but listen to how Paul collects money from the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, to send it to, the, to these other poor Christians. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want you to, t to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to his motive. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Here's, there's the gospel, that Jesus has entered our poverty, our brokenness in humanity, 
and gone to the cross in our place so that we might be forgiven of our sins by grace and mercy, not by any doing of ourselves. If someone tells you you have to do something to be saved by God, they are adding to what Jesus has said. Jesus has done it all. And then he's been raised to life to invite us to to his rich life. And, And we are said in the Bible to be heirs of heaven with Christ. So Paul's basically saying, look, what, what's in your hands is yours to do with it what you want. But as we learn what Christ has done for us, we have an opportunity to model it through our lives as well. Let me, for your sake, pass on the graces and the riches of Jesus Christ. It is kind of this practical way of showing the love of God for people. He says, I'm not commanding you. It's not a rule. It's not a law. It's not going to save you. It's just an opportunity to demonstrate the grace of Jesus to other people. It's a vehicle. Um, your wealth can be a master or a burden or an idol, or it can be a vehicle of God's grace through your life. How can, su- people, how can the suffering rest in Jesus? Paul writes, the same, same apostle Paul writes to another church in Philippi in the Bible. He writes, Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, whom being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Paul says, be like Jesus, who, though he was superior to all things, put on the limitations and brokenness of man. And though he was pure and holy and righteous, he went and suffered a sinner's death. In our place. Why? Because it was obedience. He did this as, as uh, obedience to God's will. That, that good is going to come out of it. Uh, to trust the Father. How do we make it through suffering? We put on the mind of Christ and we obey even to death. It means this. It's not a scary thing. It means this. It means that every day of our lives we can obey God while we are still alive. It means that every day of our lives... God is aware of us, has a purpose for us. If He hasn't healed us, if He hasn't changed the suffering, He will still use it, and we can just trust Him and obey Him. Do we have to understand it? No, and there's very little chance that we will understand it. But we can obey and trust Him. It's not a scary thing if God is good. It's scary to obey a tyrant. It's scary to uh, trust and obey a dictator. It's not scary to obey and trust a good, almighty, omnipotent God that is moving everything in history towards His good and loving will to recall you to Himself and to give you an eternity in His presence. Jesus understands those who suffer. Without Jesus, suffering can crush any of us. And with Jesus, suffering can, at best, lead us to eternal life quicker. (laughs) Let me draw to a close. Ultimately, suffering should only be able to lead us further into the grace of God. 
And the deeper we go into the grace of God, in other words, the deeper we go into Lazarus, uh, God, I need your help. God, I'm struggling. God, I can't make it through. God, I don't understand. God, my life, you know, is so bad. It's no life at all. It leads us into God's grace. And we trust we can only rely on God's promises. And God, but you have said that you will take away the tears, that you will take away the pain, that you will take away the suffering. You have said that you will turn my mourning into joy. You have said you, would, you will turn my suffering into dancing, into singing. You have said, and that's all I have left. And this will happen. Your healing will happen. Maybe some of it will happen in this life, but all of it will definitely happen in the life to come. So, here's what I want to ask. We have this opportunity through Jesus to kind of decide what we believe. Do I believe the philosophies that I'm, I'm taught and that are around me? Do I believe my own will? Do I believe my own truth? And that's kind of sketchy. It's, mo- it's popular and it's modern. Your truth is your truth. But man, I just want to like, put myself out there and say, I'm inadequate to determine what is truth. I'm frail and I'm broken. I'm not the smartest person that's ever lived. I don't have all the knowledge of life. I've only been on this planet for 42 years. I don't think I should be the one deciding what is truth. I'm not sure that anyone else should be deciding what is truth. And God steps in courageously and says, I can decide what is truth and you can rest in me. And the truth is I love you and the truth is I've done everything to call you to myself. And the truth is if you will humbly accept my help, I'll save you through Jesus Christ. And the truth is I have a plan for every day of your life. And the truth is I'll turn your suffering into good, into, into rejoicing. And the truth is there's not a single moment, not a single thought, not a single feeling that I don't know about. He's so present, so with us. Your heart will never be satisfied until you know God as your Father. All of us have this hearts that I've heard it described in many different ways, but almost like this hole in our hearts that we try to fill with different things, but... Um, None of us will be satisfied. And we try so many things. Everyone in this room, if you, you, there's no one in this room who's unique in this way. All of us try to fill our hearts, try to be satisfied, try to find fulfillment, try to be accepted, try to be loved. And we try different things. We try to form ourselves, change ourselves, shape ourselves, be ourselves, and nothing satisfies. Because the only thing that's made to satisfy your hearts is a relationship with God. It's not that anything you try is bad or evil. It's that it's just not the purpose of that thing to fulfill and satisfy you. There may be wonderful things, but the only thing that can give your life ultimate meaning is in a relationship with God. You were made for a relationship with God. And until you have a relationship with God, you're not enjoying what you were made for. Wealth will not satisfy you, and suffering will not crush you. When you're walking with God, you can manage both well. Won't you please stand? We're going to play a song, but you've been sitting for a while. Um, whenever you're ready, Phil, why don't you play it? The words will be up here. If you want to start singing along, it's not a hard song to sing. It's not a country song, I don't think. But um, we'll sing it anyway if you want to. Or you can just listen to it. Meditate on it. Feel free to sit if you like as well.
and then we'll take communion.